2: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Monster House presents
2: Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations.
0: It's
2: actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In this episode, we're talking with Professor Richard Harrison of Mount Royal University in Alberta. Richard teaches extensively about comics, and we really enjoyed talking with him about comic books, their history, their use of monsters, and the way that the art form itself has changed over time. It's gone from being a popular post-war art form, to the target of a huge moral panic, to being dismissed as kid books, to rising back to a respected form of literature to be the dominant basis of billions of dollars worth of movies and merchandise. And there are monsters in every step of that story. So let's just get straight to the Monster Talk. Tonight, uh, we've got a guest, Richard Harrison, who's coming to talk to us about comic book monsters. But before we talk about comic book monsters, we're also going to need to talk a little bit about what is a comic book. But before we talk about what is a comic book, we need to talk about who is Richard Harrison. So, I've brought on a special guest to talk about Richard Harrison, who he is, introducing Richard Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: I've known that guy a long time I'll tell
2: you. I mean, the thing to the
3: thing to know about me in this context most is that i I teach comics and graphic novels at uh, Mount Royal University in Calgary. Um, I've been, um, I've been a fan of comics since I was, you know, I think I was seven when I bought my first, uh, six or seven when I got my first comic. Um, Mm -hmm. actually my first, I could tell you this story. My, my first Marvel comic was the introduction of the green goblin. Ooh. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I bought it for my brother who was, he was very sick with a fever at the time. So he was, Mm -hmm. and in those days, like we're talking early sixties. Um, the treatment for fever was was I guess aspirin and then cold and, bath and comics <laughs> and com- yeah, well, that, that was my contribution to the medical profession. Um, and uh, uh, he uh, he had to take these cold baths to draw bring the fever down, and mm-hmm. then uh, and then rest a lot. So there was he, was he was he was not not a happy little guy and and uh, so I went and bought him this comic. It was actually, it wasn't actually the first, it wasn't actually the comic that introduced Green Goblin. It was the first Marvel collector's item classics that reprinted that, but it was in line with what we're talking about. The, uh, the first encounter between Spider-Man and the Hulk and, uh, uh, beautiful old Steve Ditko comic. Mm. Uh, And that was, that was really the thing that kind of hooked me I said, okay, I really love this stuff. I really love these comics and I've loved them all my life. Um, and then, but of course, being a child of the sixties, seventies, comics were things that you were supposed to put aside as, a, you know, they were the childish things. So I kind of went through an eclipse with comics and then sort of came back to them later in my life and started reading them all over again. And then, uh, at one point dropped a code word, a comic code word to a colleague of mine in a department meeting. And we knew we had both been lovers of the game, of the genre. And <laughs> uh, we decided that it was time that we should start teaching comics and graphic novels as literature. First course I taught comics as literature. We still had to make that case. Um, and we uh, and we we've been teaching it ever since. I've spoken at the San Diego Comic-Con, um, the uh, comic expos here Uh I've written several essays, um, the latest in, uh, an anthology by Anna Papard uh, called super sex, uh, about essays on sexuality in comic books. Um, and I've been, you know, it's been a tremendously wonderful story to, uh, to have been, to have ended up meeting people like, you know, Chris Claremont and, and, um, Neil Gaiman, um, Adam West, um, all through that kind of study. Um, my brother came down with, with uh, COVID. It was really rough. And uh, so I sent him a uh, Marvel True Believers reprint of that very Korean Goblin introductory. Oh, that's nice. And he, he wrote me back and he said, I feel cold baths and better.
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> nice. Well, I want to add to Richard that uh, we have Patty Masgaru, who's a friend of the show, to uh, thank. For bringing you on, uh, she recommended you to us. Um, so she was a colleague of yours from Mount Royal University.
3: She is. She's a wonderful friend and um, and uh, godmother to um, to my son. So well oh,
0: uh,
3: oh, well, wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, love Patty and and I thank her very much for introducing me to you too.
0: It seems like uh, you have a dream job. I think in the the minds of a lot of our listeners, they would think that you have a dream job, but uh, certainly not everyone reads comics and I grew up uh, in Australia and mm-hmm. my father would buy comics for me, but usually Archie comics and Betty in Victoria, uh, Veronica rather,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and also British comedy stuff. So I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with comic books like Viz and whizzer and chips. I think some mm-hmm. of those are defunct now, but going back to the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. uh, but just to begin with, if we can get a definition for comics, what are comics and where do they come from?
1: <laughs> well,
3: I, I, I mean, we could do the entire podcast on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure.
3: Because, I mean, people have been debating this for a long time. If you think of comics in, if we take comics from the sort of eighteen late 1800s as the defining point, um, then you've got, an art form in which both the words and the pictures are essential to the telling of the whole story, then you've got the 1800s onwards. I, I think they go, and I mean, Scott McLeod's book, Understanding Comics, you know, he sort of says, okay, that's the def, that is a worthwhile definition, because it at least pinpoints a time um but he goes and i pretty well anyone who thinks you know sc- the scholars on this are always debating because you look at you know cave paintings petroglyphs hieroglyphs um where there is a pictogram or a picture or a painting that is also a key point in storytelling and in in some sense you know i'm going to be cheeky and just go okay they started about 17,000 years ago in the lasco caves where you've got these wonderful wonderful paintings of of animals people different different kinds of animals different scenes and they were used by storytellers as the fixed points or the or the or the things to point to while they were telling stories to the other members mm-hmm. of the group And because there was no writing, it was impossible for there to be a comic in the sort of 19th century sense. But there there had to be a storyteller. So you've got the Lascaux paintings, you've got the petroglyphs, you've got writing on stone out here um, in Alberta, um, where the text, what we would call a text, was provided by a human being but that human being needed the pictures to tell the story and the stories needed the human being for the story to be told. Mm-hmm. So on one sense, I mean, to take it to that level on one sense, it's, it's, it's comics, stories and pictures essential to the telling of a story story to the essential that being essential to the unity of the community. Comics invented us.
2: That's interesting. I, I, trying to think of when i first heard this argument but it would have been when i was probably in high school in the 80s there was the discussion about the differences between a comic and a graphic novel hmm. and mm-hmm. and and that was around the same time we started to see some of the more ambitious comics works um this is right around the time i guess the watchman was coming out around the time i was a senior i think yeah. Uh, and, and so th- it was a transformation from what I think people thought of as sort of that's just kid stuff and and then like turning it into a form of literature. And obviously yeah. that's a, that I'm not really sure. I, even as a person, I, I, I come from an English major background, but I, I even I'm not quite sure exactly what constitutes literature, which these are all, I guess, arbitrary designations in some ways, you know. But like, what what do you see as being that sort of difference between a comic and a graphic novel? Is it just the binding is or is it the the, the is there a meritocracy of content involved here? Like, what? <laughs>
3: Well, yeah. well, on one level, I mean, Will Eisner um, is largely regarded as the person who coined the term graphic novel. And he was a comic book artist or a comic artist um, in the 40s, 50s, one, one of the one of the pioneering figures of the of the form. Uh, his, his comic was known as, it was called the spirit and it was a crime fighter who everyone thought was dead. Um, but wasn't, I mean, that whole returning to the, from the dead, we will return to that, but it's, uh, it's, it's a, it seems to be a very key element to comic literature. Um, but he had this character called the spirit and he wanted to, he, he saw what was going on in North America as a degradation of the comic form which he loved and he proved over and over again was extremely valuable. Because um, uh, he was the one who did the um, instruction manuals for uh, soldiers in World War II. Remember the level of literacy was not very high. And, um, and, pe- and so in- instruction manuals on how to assemble a field rifle, how to you know fix a Jeep, how to take care of yourself, proper hygiene. All of that was Eisner's work to turn very boring manuals into accessible writing for people whose literacy levels were varied, um, hugely successful. Soldiers who were trained with Eisner's comics were far better at what they did than soldiers who were trying to train through pure text. So Eisner could see the value of the comic and he could see other kind of cultures valued comics more than they did in North America for various reasons. Um so he produced what what most people regard as the first graphic novel, which is called A Contract with God, and it's actually four interlinked stories that are told around an apartment tenement apartment in the lower um, uh, east side of Manhattan um, uh, on what's called Dropsy Avenue, uh, and they are stories of the tenement dwellers, the immigrants to to New York, and most they were they were, in fact, centered around the life of Jewish immigrants in New York. And contract with God was Eisner's way of actually coping with the death of his own daughter, his young young daughter, by challenging the whole concept of what we owe God and God owes us. It's a fabulous, fabulous piece of work. And he wanted to get it into adult hands. So he knew that. Big, bigger comic wasn't going to do any better than thin comics, you know, would do to get it into Barnes and Noble. So he coined the phrase uh, graphic novel as a pitch to say this is a it's not a comic. It's a graphic novel. And they gave gave it a chance. It opened up the door for adults to start reading comics again. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And it um, effectively what I think is that Comics are sequential. That is, if you pick up an issue of Superman, you know there's going to be another 25, 30, 40, or apparently, and apparently I think there's a thousand issues of Superman. Superman's story never ends. Whereas a graphic novel is bound by time and space the way that we and other novels are bound by time and space, where there's a beginning and an end. So there's a lot of things that you can do in a graphic novel that you really can't do in a property like Spider-Man, um, Wonder Woman etc because they rely on continuous publication right? they're never actually they're never actually um, have a beginning or an end they just exist in a contemporaneous present all the time Charlie Brown never ages right? um, Superman never ages whereas in a graphic novel you'll see someone go through the transformation that a character does in a text novel
2: so that's would you that's sort of like a myth space, right? I mean, like, there's not so much in our mythic stories about these, you know, heroes. We, you know, Zeus is getting old. You know, Zeus for, yeah. you know, I'm getting too old for this crap. You know, like that. That's not. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, a, there's, a, there's an a, an, an ever present like that seems to be like the home of a lot of these kind of mythic um, type characters, and I, I think that yeah. that falls in there. I guess right. Yeah. They, they never actually none of these characters age they just either
3: are like zeus no longer believed in or you know like you know so many comic book characters from the from the 50s onwards they just get canceled
2: <laughs> well yeah <laughs> a quick follow-up the and i haven't really thought about this much until just now which is probably me just being short-sighted but the when i think about the history of comics a lot of it uh, you know comes out of new york and largely um influenced by a lot of important creators were jewish in their culture if not religion <laughs> uh and i'm thinking here about um superman and a lot of the early artists that were you know doing some of the influential stuff that i really liked but um uh, and uh, spiegelman uh, for mouse but that's not old but that's that's the 80s but um you know um Eisner, I mean, but so, so I, it's obviously not everyone in comics at the time uh, came from that background. But it's like, if I remember correctly, a lot of this came out of like people working out of like the fabric district or something like that, that New York Jewish influence yeah. seems really powerful. But obviously that's American comics. America's not the only place where these were being created. Are there other places, other cultural influences that are as powerful or am i reading that correctly that that is really a a really strong influence there
3: no it is it is a very strong influence and if you look at i mean the the new york's lower east side there were a quarter of a million people living there um in these tenements and and you know a lot of them were jewish emigres from persecution in europe um they weren't solely Jewish, of course, but there were a lot of them, a lot. A lot of that was high proportion, very concentrated. And what you get is Broadway, um, comic books. And and there's a huge influence, of course, those who made who went out to the West Coast um, in Hollywood. Um, because, you know, he, you know, the the Jewish, the Jewish identity, you know, is is largely formed around storytelling. Right? held together by stories um you know the the people of the book um is is a name they give themselves and so what is happening there is um it's diasporic a lot of it is diasporic literature it's it's about people being emigres and trying to fit into a new planet like superman is um, you know his jerusalem is Krypton? It's destroyed. It's gone. Right. Remember, at this time, we're talking about the 1930s, and uh, and a lot of the Jewish homelands, a lot of places they live are gone or denied them, and they're trying to live in this new place, trying to find a new identity, a new, a, a preserve an identity that's continuous with the past, and yet forge an identity that's that's congruent and 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 you know can live within the future, and it's. You know, all of these things are about people gathering together and telling stories, singing songs. It's all, uh, at least in terms of of Broadway or shows, it's all derived from the way in which they preserve their community through story. Um, And, you know, it's not exclusive to Jewish emigres in New York, but it is certainly an element of what's going on there. And I mean, we, if we were doing a podcast on Superman, for example, I would go down all the list of his characteristics of what it meant to be who you were and who you had to be, who you were to be continuous with the past. Superman's Khalel, and who you need to be to be congruent to fit within the future, fit within the present. So he's Clark Kent um, and how to fit in with that new world consistent with the principles of your homeland that no longer exists. It, it, there's a lot of really lovely layering going on in, the, in these stories. And they are very, they're cheap to make. They're, they're, you know, you're, you're dealing with people who don't have a lot of resources, but they do have a desire to, to read and tell each other things and make stuff up that, you know, navigates the world so fascinating (laughs) thank you (laughs) yeah i'm gonna say i mean japanese comics come from a very different set of origin i mean we could do another we could do a world tour um to talk about different you know why there's different sensibilities in comics and now the comics have become far more cosmopolitan you can see these different influences um coming in and 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 shaping the sort of continuous production of the comic now
0: so I think we should move on to talk about uh, comic book monsters as the the topic that we wanted to to treat in this episode. And uh, I know that we're talking about so many different kinds of comics uh, within that that genre. Hmm. But who are the monsters in comic books? You know, what is a monster according to comic books? Are we talking about supervillains, or are we talking about uh, cryptids?
3: I th- I think I mean the i think to 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 see how monsters appear in and again if i can just confine it for a sec to the sort of north american comic um that the comic monsters begin to appear in comic books after they appear in movies so either sort of two sources movies and text literature so you've got Two sort of main sources for the first appearances of monster comics in North America in the sort of 40s, right? Late late 30s, early 40s. And so you've got the literary monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. And then you've got uh you've got the folktale monsters who you made it into movies through like Wolfman, and then a version of Dracula uh the mummy um which becomes really really impressive and important when they're discovering you know uncovering you know, they're they're sort of rediscovering egypt um, uh and then uh things like uh you know the creature godzilla king kong um that migrate from the cinema into comics and comics owed a lot of their early popularity to, to the movies as a source, as source material. I mean, in fact, the comic book is a sort of like the third is, is the, you know, it's the child of the syndicated comic in the newspapers. Um, And that's where even Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster wanted to get their first Superman story was into the newspapers. They didn't even know what a comic book was Um, Mm -hmm. that comes later, but, but the movies were the big, were the big, fuel for um monster comics um and then once those start to show up then you get monsters appearing um in uh not just their own comics uh but in uh in this the burgeoning superhero stuff from the late 30s onwards where this the monster becomes what the superhero has to fight
2: right Dick Tracy's, you know, villains are a lot of them borderline on monsters, like they, they at least visually. That, they, they, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I always thought that was intriguing because I didn't know exactly, like I didn't know why. Like it never made like it was weird to me because I mean, in a superhero comic, it makes perfect sense that well, there's superheroes, there's going to be supervillains. Otherwise, it's just going to be very one sided. I mean, if you've ever watched the old tv uh superman with with just a few exceptions he's largely just fighting gangsters and it's really yeah. kind of like it's just it he's well I mean, even as superman it's a little it's a little too easy right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. So, so but uh but but they have like you know there are a lot of genres within comics and you know there's western comics and horror comics and you know like Sort of noir crime comics and, and and romance comics and obviously you could go on much further than I could with that but uh, I, I do you do you get a feel for did the monsters mostly show up in horror comics first or did they show up all over the place or like where, where do they first begin in, in your estimation I mean and, and we're putting you on the spot here because I know we're talking in sort of broad terms and I guess. Specifically, I'm not asking you to like. I need you to be declaring this so I can get it on Wikipedia. I just <laughs> roughly. <laughs> yeah,
3: <right. laughs> um, I'd be re- I'd be revised and edited within 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the monsters. I guess it, we come back. I mean, you're right. There are some really ugly, distorted characters. Uh, you know, Dick Tracy, Prune Face, and Flat Top, and and those characters. Um, certainly the Joker in Batman. uh, These are distorted or disfigured human beings or just ugly human beings um, because comics is a visual language, right? So you've got to have something to say this character is different from this character. Um, And the invention of costumes was a big favor, right? You don't really have to care about what they look like. They just are all in red or have a big cape. Um, (laughs) But I, I, you know, I, I keep coming back to, you know, what what does the what a monster is is dependent on what it represents, and, you know, if you go back to again, I'm going to go slip back to the mythology, right, where where in, indeed there's some monsters like the Hydra, the you know the Nemean lion, the Griffins, you know uh, the Gorgons. These are these were monsters in Greek mythology, um, the Golem who is either a monster or a savior, depending on which story you read in the, in the, in the Jewish uh, mythology. Um, and it's, it, you know, etc. They they take from everywhere. Um, those monsters, I, well, no, golem is different, but, um, but say Hydra, the Hydra out of the swamps of Lernia is the creature from the Black Lagoon, I, It It's just, it's another sort of force of nature in animal form against which the hero is pitted to you know ensure their own survival or the survival of an innocent person. Effectively it's the it's animal nature versus humans. And and I see those monsters as representative of the forces that would consume us. Because we were really afraid of you know mastodons and snakes and stuff. They, They were the overpowering they were the force with which we had to contend or they were representatives of natural forces with which we had to contend. Right? There was a time when animals were our like worst enemy.
0: Right?
3: Um, so uh, those monsters have that represent they represent that. So they're largely just pure forces. I, I think that that changes with Frankenstein where um, Mary Shelley creates a creature whom everyone else sees as a monster, but who is actually very refined, very educated, very sensitive, only wants to be loved, but is turned into a vicious creature by our own reaction to his ugliness, his otherness. So the monster Goes from being this a, a creature that has no relationship to us, is indifferent to us, we're just prey, right? or an annoyance, to something that wanted to belong with us but was outcast, and and from then on, the monster, the, the the true monsters. And I think the Hulk is like that kind of a character. Um, the thing from the Fantastic Four, um, even, you know, Venom or, or blockbuster or Killer Croc, or you just you know, keep rolling them out.
2: Please excuse this brief editorial interruption. At this point in the conversation, we got into a discussion about the etymology of the word monster, which I'm editing here for clarity. There seems to be a general consensus that the word monster comes from the Latin word monstrum, which has its roots in the idea of a warning. Monsters, often literally monstrous births, were considered to be omens or warnings. But many other words with similar roots have been tied to the word monster through both literal etymology, such as the word demonstrate, and also through folk etymology. And our conversation included a discussion of the word monarchy, which comes from the roots mono, meaning one, and archon, meaning leader. And this provides deep, poetic connections with the power of monsters as well as their innate loneliness. And with that clarification, we return you to this conversation already in progress.
3: The monster is always the only one of its kind constantly looking for another of its kind um, and and in, in the end sort of turns to us and we reject it. Uh, that the psychological monster, the social monster. Wait, Raza- great, are ben- you Hattie- saying
2: that the Frankenstein monster was the first incel? Is that <laughs> <laughs> He was looking for variety He got one He almost got one <laughs> He got close, he got close right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> want to be loved. <laughs> he did
2: though, right? I no, think... yeah, he did. He did he wanted a companionship. He wanted to be human or he he wanted the companionship of like minds and you know and he was in some ways smarter and kinder until pushed and then things yeah. And I think everybody mm-hmm. it, it, you compare that to say Eric the 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 villain from uh The Phantom of the Opera who is hideous, but is also internally a monster. You don't really, there's not much sympathy for Eric. He's a really bad character.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah, he is. And I mean, he's, and again, so he's, he's like the predecessor for characters like Two Face and the Joker, you know, who's driven mad by his own disfigurement. Um, um, but he also, yeah, and he knows that, um, no one's going to accept him. Like he's, he sort of preemptorily just realizes what he is. That's interesting. Because he's surrounded by the best music in the world, Eric is. Yeah. And yet it has no effect on him. <laughs>
2: right? Well, he, he seems fond of Christine. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> in Selmer, right? Yeah, he, he longs
3: for someone. He's driven. But again, it, they're all driven by their aloneness, right? Like they're all... They're all driven.
2: Oh, and I bet that never rang true for any comic book kid reading alone at home. You know, oh, that, oh, I'm, I'm having flashbacks. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's, well, yeah, really. No wonder we all love them. <laughs> yeah, no,
2: I mean the monster. I mean that's you know it's our show is monsters, and we we use them as a springboard to talk about science and culture and all kinds of things. But ultimately, I think you know you're right one of the reasons we often love monsters when they're i mean even things like godzilla which is you know maybe he's a force of nature i don't know but like it's easy to feel sympathy across those stories because we see the humanity in even in the monsters. and loneliness is such a, a visceral you know emotion is so powerful to to yeah. to have You know, that yearning for companionship and uh, an equal mind and all that sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes. To relate to that. Yeah. 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 Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, Go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
1: Go to your happy
0: place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
1: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care
2: about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness,
1: philosophy,
3: UFOs, ghosts, or say
2: Bigfoot.
1: So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch?
3: Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right.
1: That is a face on Mars,
3: eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the Volleyball. Some people enjoy
0: the waves or whatever uh, crashing, uh, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook.
3: I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show.
2: <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod. And Wagon,
3: and, and I think too that the other element there is that with a character like Godzilla um, or you know the Hulk, um, monster still does. It's not like we're com- we're completely um, unjustified in our in our reaction to the monster because you know, these monsters uh, because these monsters are created for us. They're all fictional characters, but they're all created for us to embody something we are terrified of. And in the case of Godzilla, it's nuclear war because right? mm-hmm. um, he's 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 created by the atom bomb. Right. And and then he becomes the destruction of the atom bomb personified as a lizard. Right? And, and the Hulk is created by an atomic explosion and then and rage um, and a human rage that's unleashed because of the power of the atom. So you do get to see you still do. You, I don't think you ever completely lose the fact that these are forces of nature given some sort of animal or human form.
0: So it seems over the past couple of decades that comics have become recognized as a form of literature uh, Mm -hmm. more and more. And how has the role of monsters in that medium changed over time?
3: Um, well, I think there's a great deal more sympathy for the monstrous figure in, uh, uh, certainly in comics, um, you know, in the comics code, it, you know, in the late late 50s. Right. They said you can't have any sympathy for the villain Like it's actually a code. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, they broke that pretty quickly. I think the first the first character who broke that in Marvel anyway, in this that 1960, when they reintroduced the superhero when Marvel did, DC did a few years earlier, uh, um, was the Mole Man. Who was he? Looked like a mole, like he was just a, a mole-ish kind of person, and the, the <laughs> you know, very, very nearsighted the whole bit. Um, and he does, he lives in the in the underneath the earth because he can't because people can't he can't stand the reaction that he gets to human being or the ordinary people give him. Sort of like the penguin, and right? the penguin with the mm-hmm. um, um, but he we, we were given. A story with which we had sympathy, because we all know what it like it feels like to be ridiculed for something that's not our fault. Um, and more and more, you know I see these characters, you know, who are either or um, either true monsters in the sense that they are they're distorted shapes, like venom, um, uh, who's got like three movies now, um or the thing. Um, even they're, they're even letting Martian Manhunter be more monstrous in appearance, right? They, they're letting him be more Martian, um, uh, again, etc. Um, but they're giving, they're, they're more figures of sympathy than they were figures of fear. And I mean, now they're more hero. they're, they're heroes, right? Mm-hmm. So They've gone from being that which the hero must destroy in order to be the hero to, you know, the hero itself, himself, herself, Mm -hmm. who has to actually hmm, has to show us how to live with their own aloneness.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Every time I think about the thing, I think about the, the there's an indie comic called Concrete. Oh yeah. Uh, and I, it, it's, it's so interesting because it could be a superhero comic, but it's largely just a guy who's suddenly stuck into a body of stone and having like a, trying to live a normal life. And it's just, it's, I, it's so heart touching in some ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, but, but, you know, that's true for the thing as well. The, the Bing Graham character. Um, I mean, just, you know, it's, he's super tough. He's super strong, but can he feel it when you touch him? His, you know, he, he's, no it, it so he's got this he's kind of blocked off from the world of the senses in some ways you know and so mm-hmm. and he also sees himself as hideous so he ends up dating a blind girl which sort of resolves some of the anyway they, 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 we don't need to re- revisit uh, his complicated story <laughs> <laughs> anyway but I, I i do i i think about this all the That's time the- about uh you you just barely mentioned it but the this comics code and the 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 way comics have, have been viewed over time. Like, for example, um, you know I I'm a big fan of EC comics and I'm actually mm-hmm. rereading very slowly because I have too many things on my to do list. But I'm reading my way through Tales from the Crypt. Um, and there's not actually that many issues of them, but in um, those largely came out of there a lot of that material is just repurposed. Stuff that's in the public domain and stuff that's not technically in the public domain, so they, you know, scratch the serial numbers off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they did a lot of that, they did, they did a, lot a lot of, of that. that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I really, yeah. I mean, that it caused a lot of outrage, and but that outrage never, even though the comics code stuff happened, and I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. But I remember one of my first comics, um, that I bought, uh, they were actually. I can almost. It was related to a doctor's visit. The doctor's office was right next to a little drugstore, and I went from the doctor's office over to the drugstore with a couple of bucks that I had, and I bought um, a Spider-Man comic book and a UFO comic book, and I was yeah. very excited about both. Uh, the UFO one was the Gold Key series; those were amazing. Um, I loved those, yeah. yeah. And the comic book was Spider-Man meets Ghost Rider and oh my gosh uh, my mom caught glimpse of of you know, ghost Rider and his hellfire and Uh-oh. wow wow that <laughs> comic book did not make it uh <laughs> uh-uh. so, i don't know how that did you get down. to read it at no all? no no i got Aww. to watch my dollar go in the trash can so oh uh, yeah so anyway um but the point <laughs> is people have a lot of moral judgments about comics. I imagine the mm. monsters don't help that. Uh can you talk a little bit about how the sort of moral panic around comic books happened and what that led to code-wise? For sure. That um I mean that is known as the dark
3: ages, you know, among the com among comic <laughs> people who like to, you know, mark eras. Um Effectively, after the end of this, like the second prior to Second World War, Second World War time, you've got Captain America, Superman, Batman, Justice Society. You've got you've got a, a burgeoning of comics. Um, it's called. the, But you've also got true crime comics, um, creepy tales, weird tales like all of these comics are being produced. Comics should be produced by the thousands um, because after you get the success of Superman, uh, suddenly comics go from being small business to big business. And it's known as the golden age because the artists and the writers could do whatever they wanted, like whatever you can imagine, draw that. So you, you've got this wide range of comics, extraordinarily wide variety in terms of quality. Um, um, But there's really no moral. <laughs> there's all, I don't, there's almost no morality, right? There's just, everybody just told the stories they wanted to tell, which is the way in which, you know, literature kind of works, right? That it's at its maximum level of freedom, you can tell the story you want to tell. And so they did that. But after the war is over, um, well, two things happened. One is after the war is over, and I'm kind of, sorry, I may have conflated this a bit here. After the war is over, a lot of comics faded away just because people weren't interested in them anymore. Um, But partly, and I've heard this, I've I've read this. I, I'm not sure how deeply sort of I, I'm not sure how to think about it yet. But let's put it this way, that the comics, because they're instantaneous, like they come out every month um, or every week or two months, two weeks, they are responding very, very quickly to what the audience wants and what the audience will um, will reject. Um, you get comic companies just springing up, going for four weeks and disappearing. And some people argue that comics became more grotesque, more criminal. The crimes became more exaggerated. The bloodshed was more uh, pronounced uh, because a lot of people came back. A lot of the comic readers, i.e. American servicemen, um, because they'd been trained to read comics, because they were trained as soldiers through comics. Um, They came back and they they wanted to see... A, a, they wanted to, they, they wanted from their entertainment something that would connect with their experience, mm-hmm. and you know people coming back from war, you know, bloodshed doesn't necessarily isn't the I can't look at this. I, there there is this sense that the world is a lot tougher, so comic books got tougher. Now because comic books are this is what David Lloyd the guy who drew V for Vendetta. So he told me when I was at a Comic-Con, he said, the reason comic books are disparaged is because children can make them. Um, anyone with a pencil can make a comic. And you know I would add, because children can read them. Children can read much more sophisticated stories in comic book form than they can in text form. So they can be very, very influential at an early age. So when you get these comics that are drawn in by adults and they are accessible to children, then you've got all the makings of the moral panic and what was happening in the fifties in America um, was a lot, it, it was causing a lot, there was a huge social disruption. And so red book, the magazine started to produce a series of articles by Frederick Wortham, the psychologist about the dangers of comic books uh, as affecting children and, Wortham played very fast and loose with his clinical experience this is very clear, but he would, he would argue that the the delinquents to use that term, the delinquents that he studied, that he was working with and that he was studying to figure out what was going on. They all read comics. So comics were a contributor to delinquency. So he reread comics as promoting violence, promoting drug use, promoting uh, crime, promoting homosexuality, promoting communism, promoting all the things that America was terrified of. Um, So there was a, a right alongside the same inquiry into Hollywood films, they were busy looking at comic books. And in order to save themselves, those comics that couldn't save themselves, like the EC line, they, there were no more creepy horror comics no more people you know the dead eating the living all that stuff none of that they either got right out of the comic book business um uh the gains uh max Gaines, got out and formed mad magazine because magazines were different than comic books um some of them just shut up house they closed house um lots of people were fired lots of people went into advertising other things that they could use their talents for and a thin lay like, thin the thin the narrowly defined topics of comics where it kept comics alive and and the, there were three or f- i mean just a the three or four top ones were romance comics they invented the romance comic in order to save themselves to keep publishing the western space comics um sanitized space comics of course um and monster comics because monsters the if you look at the way the monsters went in comics during that period after oh sorry the comics business looked at what was happening in the movie business and the movie business was governed ended up being governed by what was known as the hayes code h-a-y-e-s and hayes code says you can't show this you can't show that you can't show this so movies became very confined comics went You don't have to give us a haze code. We'll do it ourselves. So they invented the comics code. And so all the comics had to pass this code, which said things like evil can't win. Um, No sympathy for um, no sympathy for the devil. Um, People, characters couldn't be too ugly (laughs) to designate themselves as villains or heroes. Um, No sex, of course, no drug use. you know, it's, you know, no grotesqueries, no mutilation, no showing of any sexualized parts of the human body, all that stuff. So monsters showed up as part of the lifeline of comics. And you look at the comic and you look at the monsters during this period. So we're looking at the sort of 50s, 1950s. They're very cute. Um, one of them was Groot. Uh, the living tree. <laughs> Right. Um, but you get Groot, Goom, Fin Fang Boom. You get these you get these wordplay horrific, but not really horrific kind of monsters um, who are playing out these fantasy stories because they were kind of they were they they passed the code. They were safe. So on on one level, you know, the you know, the comedic possibility of the monster. And you see that in characters like uh, big hero six, the Pixar character, like that big balloon looks like the Pillsbury dough
0: Yeah. My son loves that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It's, it's, fun. Bay it's Baymax,
2: right?
0: I... Yeah, that's
3: right. That's his name. Um, um, or, or even the Pillsbury Doughboy in ghostbusters, right? You get these cute and cuddly kind of monsters. Um, where you know, they become sort of because they're so different from human beings, they become the vehicles for these for the for the for those stories to be told with their moral lessons and their, you know, requisite suspense but not horror.
2: Um, that pass the code. It's the call of cute thulu. <laughs> <laughs> That's good.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: So I've never heard of uh, of romance comics, and so if you had the code with no sex, were these just kind of PG thirteen? Oh
2: yeah, yeah <laughs> there's no sex. It's marriage. <laughs>
0: yeah, it,
3: it's all teenage longing. Um, you know, oh I want to be. Oh, it's there, and they were they were huge. Like when it, mm. in. This is part of the comics history that becomes, you know, really interesting for people who want to study gender in comics is that, you know, effectively, the comics realized the comics corporations realized that they couldn't sell to their old cohort. So they had to expand who they were selling to. So instead of just boys, they, were sell- they started to sell to girls.
0: Right. It's like Biddy and Veronica then with the Archie comics that my dad would get me.
3: That's right. They were. <laughs> that's right. And, and they were, and they were, they got very, I mean, there were, there was a lot of sexual tension. It was all sexual tension of the sort of grade 11 level, right? Right. Um, um, Nobody actually did anything or if they did anything, it was completely offstage or implied. Um, (laughs) But they would sell young romance would sell half a million comics a month. they They had
1: a huge
3: audience. Um, but once the, once the code started to loosen and DC started to reintroduce the characters who had been sort of effectively sidelined by poor, either poor sales or the code or both, they downplayed those comics. They started to disappear again. There, there are two other things here to say. One one is that the funny animal comic starts to really take off, um, uh, during this period. Um, Disney, Looney Tunes, they all were reintroducing these characters and they were, they were not monsters, Tasmanian devil, maybe, you know, but they weren't, they, they weren't monsters in that sense, but they were non-human representations of human characteristics. Um, and they were very acceptable. Everyone loves Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck and, and all those characters. Um, so that was a big market for comics during this period. Um, and in, in, a, in a kind of way, monsters were, they had that sort of alliance with the cartoon characters more than they did with their old movie predecessor.
2: Could you talk a little about this transition from this period where we had the Tencent Menace and, and this, you know, this comics code scare and the moral panic to the world we are in now. We're, Basically, the Marvel Cinematic Universe rules the box office and like everything's a comic book movie. Like uh, how mm. that, that's an incredible transition in what seems like a pretty short amount of time. I mean, yeah, I mean, I say it's a short amount of time. It's my lifetime is what it is. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah. <You're very> sure. <laughs> when you think
3: about right where Stan Lee is writing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four in nineteen. 19- you know, sort of 1960 1960s and early 60s, and he won't even tell people what his job is, um, to he's, you know, he was the sort of cameo king of Hollywood. Um, it's, it is stunning. It is really stunning. I mean, I know a lot of old comic book fans like me who resent all of it, right? They never understood. Because once comics became very popular, then what was important about being a comic reader started to diminish. Because you were this exclusive group of people who were getting something that no one else got,
2: um, and now everyone gets it. So, well, something. that that we have the same feeling in the IT world for people who still know how to pop open a terminal and type, you know, commands. It's like, oh, you graphics people with your fancy interfaces, you know, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's right. there is that 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 sort of. I've got a special knowledge, and and now it's become popular. And you know, they're not mm-hmm. real fans. That, that happens all the. That, mm-hmm. I don't. There's the something. There was an elitism or something there. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: Well, there is something about you know. And again, I mean, to back to back to monsters. You know, monsters do cling to their identity. Right? They, they, they. You know, they're, they're, I don't know whether you saw the the latest the Spider-Man picture, right? Where where Peter Parker decides that the way to save Doctor Octopus and the the lizard and the Sandman—they're kind of monstrous characters, right? The, the lizard is
2: the creature. Again. Oh, 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 spoiler warning—I I suspect spoiler warning. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm not going to say her another. I mean, one. although it's made so much money, you might assume everyone's already seen it twice because, good lord, that movie has done well. <laughs> it's done very well. Done but go ahead, well, you can it, finish your talk. It, it
3: effectively says, and I can. I, there's nothing wrong. I, I won't say how it all ends or anything, but but effectively. Um, instead of fighting them, uh, Peter Parker decides to cure them, right? So, because they're all driven, like Dr. Octopus is driven in, in the movies, he's driven mad by the accident that fuses his body with these artificial limbs. Again, another primal fear, right? The loss of integrity of the body mm-hmm. and and being taken over by technology. The lizard is a human being transformed into this, lizard right um and in the uh in both the comics and i think in the movie i'm pretty sure is because he's lost his arm and he's trying to find a way to regenerate his own arm his own human arm by using lizard dna and of course this is a huge fear we all have that our dna will be corrupted and will turn into monsters uh sandman is a, a human being who's turned into this pile of of um animated sand um and I well, in the comics, it was originally by an atomic accident. I don't remember why it happened in the movies
2: uh in the rainy and, movie, I'm pretty sure he was in a nuclear accident as well. It was one of the things oh, okay. yeah so yeah. okay
3: so, okay so um spider man the the spectacular spider man comic book series then it was the it was the result of an attempt to make an invulnerable human being, but um they're all monsters, right. And so he decides he's going to cure them. And they resist. Right? They don't want to be cured. <laughs> and that, that, so they have, this, they have this debate, which we all have, right, in terms of our individuality. Ultimately, in terms of our individuality, we all have to decide whether what, what makes us who we are is a gift or a curse.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And um, that, that gets debated in that particular film. And I think that's part of where monsters are going is that, you know, are they, in fact, you know, figures we should fear or are they models for how we should actually be about our own individuality?
2: Oh, this is the same debate I have about puns all the time. You know, is <laughs> is it a power? Is it a curse? Yeah. It's exactly. <laughs> So anyway,
3: the, uh, you asked, the other question you asked me, how, how did the Marvel Cinematic Universe be, you know, rule the world now? I mean, partly, you know, the, the, the sort of easiest answer to make is now the cinematic audience, now the movie audiences are people like us who've been raised reading comics. And at last, you know, we can see our heroes on screen, you know, up with the other fantasy figures that movies and, and you know, figures whose stories provide a spectacle. Right? Which is what movies have become more than anything like it is about the spectacle go to the- go to the movies and be filled with awe and wonder um, those storylines are completely designed for that to happen um, so partly it's you know the the movies change because the audience does um but I think there's something more about it i think there's something or at least something extra you can say right because you know comic books have been making it into uh, into other elements of popular culture almost since the beginning like the fleischer superman pictures um they appear two years after superman um hits hits the stands um the batman television series uh arrives in 1966 actually right about the time that the Batman comics are starting to fade away because they're so code suppressed that the dark knight of Gotham has become a clown, right? Um and and even his fans don't want to see him anymore. Um the television show is what revives that character. Um the Tim Burton Batman and the um the early X-Men pictures, 1989, 1990s, you know, they are starting to they're they're they've been doing that now, nineteen ninety is thirty years ago. So they, the, this this has been happening in movies. The serial, like the the Fleischer comics cartoons, were shown before the major motion pictures. Radio took these characters on like mad. You know, here's a here's a bit of trivia: Batman and Superman first meet on radio.
2: Hmm. Um,
3: wow.
0: Interesting.
2: There you go. Were they friends? Crypt- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, they, uh,
3: they, yeah, they were friends. They were friends on radio. Kryptonite first appears on radio. Superman flies first in the cartoons. Uh, so these, char- these, these characters have been going back and forth between their print form and their other media forms almost since the beginning.
2: Yeah, that's uh, okay. that's that's fascinating too because I, I see that kind of looping cultural interchange a lot around monsters in folklore uh Mm -hmm. monsters as people actually report seeing them and monsters in movies and i i've i've come to think about it as like this loop of of inner you know elements being passed back and forth back and forth you know the stories people see provide a cultural template for the things that they can experience which in turn informs the fiction and the folklore and the kinds of experiences people have and yeah. I've, I've i started calling it a perpetual notion machine because it's, <laughs> it's just this constant <laughs> loop and interchange and it just it seems to be we're driven by stories we we live our lives in stories we have our we biographize in stories like that's just that's how we experience the world is through stories and so um yeah that makes perfect sense to me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
0: Thank
3: you, I, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you on the perpetual notion machine. Oh, you should, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well but, but so now, okay, I'm gonna get on my, <laughs> I'm gonna get my own hobby horse here, right? Because, uh, you know, I I have my own theory, This is one of those things that you get to do every so often. Oh, cool, um, yeah, yeah. Is is that what what those of us who love comics? um, never really felt, you know, during, during our own childhoods, or like you say, the, your mom who throws away, you know, ghostwriter meets Spider-Man, um, uh, was, we felt disdain for a form of art we loved. And when it started to be treated with some respect in, in the shows that we all mentioned, like I just did about know these characters There was plenty of shows that were made that have no respect for the characters at all but when we started to see um the respect for the characters or respect for their possibility um we were really happy really happy to see that but what we really wanted to see what we what what i think we really wanted to blend was our awe of things that were in already in the movies space movies and Westerns and stuff, big broad vistas of space and time. We wanted to see our awe that we saw in those forms with the awe we felt for the characters that we were reading in comic books. And comic book characters are all small. The, the comic book is something a child can hold in their hands. So, but in our imagination, they're huge. So they're safe because they're tiny, but they're awesome, right? Because they hold this imaginative field for us. And we go to the movies to feel about those characters and their stories the way we felt as children. Only this time, they really are bigger than us.
2: Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I also, I mean, I, you know, things like the technology advancing to the point that we can actually see a Jack Kirby scene brought to life, and it looks decent. It doesn't looks look good. Yeah, yeah. that is. Stu- I'm so excited about the new Doctor Strange movie. Oh my god! Anyway, <laughs> 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 I'll see you there. <laughs> I, 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 I the comic movies are popular, but I know that the industry's had to. Struggles some with this conversion of everybody reading things digitally. uh Do you have a sense of two things? I guess one is how how is the comics business doing today, and where do you think the role of monsters in the industry is heading?
1: Okay, um
3: the comic. I mean, the comic stores are still there. They're not as many as they used to be. The comics are still being produced, not as many as they used to be. Um but and that's because partly it's digital so you don't have to buy any of that stuff uh but in you know the answer to how the business is doing effectively i mean as much as the comics as comic companies dc and marvel and and uh image and you know etc have to you know make make them make a profit or make themselves at least survive they don't have to do it as much as they Did anymore, right? DC is owned by Warner, Time Warner. Uh, Marvel is owned by Disney. Um, And effectively, if you look at the budget, you look at the uh, the budget breakdowns for the the corporations for which you know which own all these things. Marvel and DC, particularly, I'm not sure of all the other relationships there, but Marvel and DC are are research and development. Like they they are budget lines in their parent companies. Uh, like a like any department, so oh, they they only have to make characters who are popular enough for the main company to say that's interesting. I might make a movie out of that one. Uh, so they don't have to be self-supporting um, he, it, self supporting anymore. Any but there's they have to be self supporting in the way in which the department of you know the 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 appliance department in you know uh, what in Walmart has to show that it's selling enough appliances to warrant Walmart to keep putting appliances in there or the boots. (laughs) Let's put it this way. Do they sell appliances at Walmart? (laughs) Um, The boot section. They
2: they do. They they do. But yeah, yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I figure they sell everything. I I can't really go wrong. But you know what I mean? Like your department is slacking a bit. So, you know, shape up. But it's not the same. I mean, effectively, even the most even the best selling comics now, um, they are running at, at figures that would have caused the issues to be canceled in uh you know twenty, thirty years ago. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but they don't they don't have to. They they just have to they're they're testing grounds for the movie property.
2: Well, I guess there's the indie scene too. I mean, uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends who make their own comics and seem to be, you know, they do well enough that they can keep doing it. I, you know, I don't think any of them are retiring or getting movie deals, but you know, they're getting their stories out, which is what writers like to do.
3: Yeah. And there's a huge and lovely movement. Um, uh, Here in, in Calgary, we have what's known as panel one, which is the organization that has a conference every, every year to bring all these indie comics you know creators together and yeah they fill you know a you know grade school gym with booths and displays and and that sort of thing that's still a lot of people who are just dedicated to what they do and of course you're not allowed to bring any of the commercial properties into the room <laughs> like it's it's right? it's all just the indie stuff you know and and with the way in which printing is available now and and uh, you know all that technology of distribution is there you get some really, really great things going on. So there is that, um, that, that, that will always keep the comic business alive and refreshed and, and maybe none of them ever sell, you know, big stuff anywhere else, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's, they do, it. they really love this form.
2: Oh, and the the latter half of that question was any, any feel for where monster comics or monsters in comics are heading? I mean, it's, that's a tough question. If you don't have an answer, it's okay. So.
3: You know, I see the, the monster, you know, more and more being a kind of uh, uh, figure with which we can feel a great deal more sympathy. I, 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 you know, th- there's a sort of cathartic quality to monsters like Venom and, and uh, well, like him, <laughs> um, you know, who just does what we want to do, right? There's that kind of psychological psychological play with mm-hmm. them. Or there is that.
2: You oh, know, you mean the character who's basically all ego, like just or it, all id. Sorry, all id. Yeah, yeah, all id. Yeah, yeah. yeah
3: <laughs> That's right. like... and then uh, Carnage, all psychosis. Yeah, um, uh, you know you. You know I see them, like I said, if not the hero, Ooh. at least much more the protagonist. Um, I mean, there will always be those the monster who's opposed to whatever hero it is but oftentimes that monster that kind of monster is opposed to another kind of monster right mm-hmm. who is the good monster um yeah i i that that's where i you know i have no predictive power but i, I think it's, it it's it's that's where i think they're going is they're going to be you know it, you know when 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 spiegelman you know made mouse know. In some ways, he he talks about why he chose to do what he did, and then others. It's you know, there's lots of scholarship about it. But he took the funny animal comic. He took, he took the you know the Bicky Mouse, and turned it to a figure of sympathy, of huge sympathy. Right, all the all the the Jews were all the mice, and and put them through the Holocaust. Um. But the reason that that worked like i don't i don't know how many people would read a hol- would read a holocaust memoir where there are realistic drawings of people being burned alive or being shot or whatever you know all the things that were done but you are allowed your guard goes down when you're looking at something that's not you but is enough like some part of you that you can allow yourself to feel more fully for it than you could for something that was directly you right. um and I think that's where monsters are gonna go they They are going to be locations of feeling, only not like before, not just fear, but sympathy doubt we're, we're more patient when a monster has to have a soliloquy <laughs> than we are when we you know each other does
0: right. That's a very difficult thing to predict, but I think that's a pretty good prediction. Thank you. <laughs> so, Richard, we've got one final question for you. We've really enjoyed chatting with you. This is, we could talk for a lot longer about oh, this. Oh, yeah.
2: Topic. Oh, yeah. Yep. I <laughs> think we'll have to have
0: you back on uh, to talk again. But, I would uh, love just, to.
3: Thank you. I would love to. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.
0: But well, we just have one final question for you now. And that's our uh, signature question that we like to ask all of our guests What's your favorite monster?
1: <laughs> uh, you know, uh,
3: when you said that at the beginning of this talk, I was going to say the creature from the black lagoon because he, he hit my consciousness right at the right time. Mm. Right.
1: Like,
3: <laughs> there's that moment, you know, when you go, this is my favorite hockey team because I love that one moment. Right. Um, and I, I really do like that creature. I just like the look, <laughs> um, but now that we've talked that, at length about this, I, you know, I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go back to, uh, to Frankenstein's monster. Um, cause I think he for monsters is, is he for monsters is, is what Superman is the superhero. He's you, the more I look at him, the more I see every aspect of all the other monsters that, I think are important or move me. Um, I can revisit this character. I can. I like looking at the creature, but I don't really think about it very much. But I really think a lot about about Mary Shelley's creation. So yeah, I'm going to go with Frankenstein's monster.
2: I love it. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I I have seen lots of illustrations, but uh Bernie Wrightson's uh illustrations of of that book are so awesome. I don't mm-hmm. just I oh my gosh. Yeah, they're just so good. Anyway, gone too soon. Made Blake yeah. very
0: happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, no for sure. Yeah. And oh I mean, I'm a big fan of the Creature from the Black Lagoon too. And, and we just lost uh, Julie Adams uh, in 2019, who played that just the gorgeous lead in that uh, the the female lead in them. Just such an amazing piece of uh, cinema. The 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 costume is just so it holds up so well. It really does. It does. Uh, it really does. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's not a super complicated film, you know, but it, it it's a hoot. Yeah. It's really fun. So
0: it doesn't have to be. Yeah, <laughs>
2: these are all great. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us in our audience. I appreciate sure. it so much.
0: Thank I you, was, Richard. Yeah, it was really interesting.
3: You're very, very welcome. and uh, Blake Karen. I just I've enjoyed this so much.
0: Thank and you. Us too. <laughs> Monster Talk.
2: You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And
0: I'm Karen Stoltzner.
2: You just heard an interview with Professor Richard Harrison of Mount Royal University in Alberta discussing the intersection of comic books and monsters. Check out our show notes for lots of links to material that we discussed in our conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Therapist Uncensored, Subtext, and Small Things Often. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening and for being a part of the Monster Talk family.